This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The Mexican but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what no happened. role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. Anytime we go through periods of internal disagreement and indeed uh, challenges to internal trust as we have, there are things that we have to reflect on and understand and do better next time. Justin Trudeau is in trouble, but does it matter? And here to help me answer that existential question is Mr. Canada himself, otherwise known as Chris Sands of Johns Hopkins University. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thank you very much, Richard. So we're talking about a scandal here. Just to make clear, we're recording this on March the 6th. So if there's new developments in the scandal, uh, listeners will not hold us accountable. But the scandal involves uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada allegedly pressured his attorney general, who has since resigned, to drop an investigation of a Quebec company called SNC Laval. Group, mm-hmm. uh, which is a big construction and engineering firm, I take it. The Attorney General, uh, Wilson Rabel, went public, uh, resigned, and since then we've had a couple more resignations. Do I got it right, Chris, or what, what did I miss there? Well, there's one key element that, that is important in that the Attorney General, Jody Wilson Rabel, was under pressure to do something called a deferred prosecution agreement with regard to SNC Lavalin. Canadian law has a kind of extraterritorial aspect for Canadian citizens and Canadian firms. So what the company was facing, if prosecuted, was a 10-year ban on any contracting with the Canadian government, which, because of the way the international system sets up, would also block them from World Bank-affiliated projects or finance projects and would hurt their reputation. SNC-Lavalin is an engineering company, uh, one point the fifth largest in the world, so they do big infrastructure projects around the world. A 10-year ban, one especially if it was was followed by other governments, could break the company. And so the deferred prosecution agreement, which was the Minister of Justice's option to offer, would have meant that uh, they would have paid a fine, but they would not be penalized with the 10-year ban. And so her, on the advice of her lawyers and the lawyers of the Justice Ministry in Canada, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould said that she did not want to do a deferred prosecution agreement because in her mind, they, the company hadn't earned it, that that wasn't really appropriate in this case. When she put her foot down on that, uh, after some pressure allegedly from the prime minister and people on his staff and also from the finance minister, people on his staff, the prime minister demoted her to minister of veterans affairs, which in the Canadian system puts you kind of in the outer cabinet and then replaced her with a man named David Lametti, who had previously been trade minister. He's a former dean of the McGill University Law School, uh, well-regarded but he, and a lawyer. So he stepped into the job and immediately said, we, we're sure we can work all of this out. Then, after the prime minister said, there's no problem here. We just did a cabinet shuffle. No big deal. Nothing to see here. That was when Jody Wilson-Raybould resigned because she felt that she had been demoted and punished for holding the line and The prime minister went out and said, oh, we're all still friends. And she felt that that was uh, dishonest. So uh, if this were a trial, we're still in the discovery phase here, Chris. We are still discovering. So what what exactly did SNC-Lavalin, what are they accused of doing? It's a big construction engineering firm. They're international, you said? They are international, but headquartered in Montreal. Headquartered in Montreal. So what are they, who accuses what of doing what? So they are accused of providing bribes and financial incentives to the government of Libya back during the Muammar Gaddafi days. So this goes back quite a ways. 
The um, the investigations have suggested that this happened. It isn't something the company is denying. It's really debate about what's the appropriate remedy, given that this happened some time ago, and there's not a sense that all of the current executives are, are were there at the time. So should you punish the company for something that, that has now come to light? Um, but there's not a lot of suggestion that they're innocent and they've just been unfairly picked on. It's just more a question of whether you should take the penalty that might well put the company out of business. And this is this is sort of the, the political dimension. Um, SNC-Lavalin's headquarters is in the constituency in Montreal. They're, they're located. That is represented by Prime Minister Trudeau. That's, that's where he runs. It's a very large employer. And for much of Canadian history, engineering was dominated by English speakers. And SNC-Lavalin is not only a French-Canadian-headed firm, but also a very successful one. And it rewards engineering, which is something that you know has long been a point of pride that Quebec is sort of moving up into the professional categories. So politically, symbolically, has a huge impact, particularly for Quebecers who see this as, as something of a national champion. So if I were on Trudeau's staff or his lawyer or whatever, and I are constructing a defense, I mean, couldn't you say, I think I've heard at least one commentator say this, this is sort of the equivalent of prosecutorial discretion, right? I mean, you have this large, apparently successful, important Canadian company, uh, did something 30-odd years ago. You know, is this really the best use of the Justice Department's time to go after this company? Is that, in fact, what they're saying? Or who, who what are... Trudeau's defenders saying about this um, supposed intervention? One, are they admitting that he did it? And and two, if, if they admit that he did it, what's the justification? So they are admitting that he did it. And and Judy, Jody Wilson-Rabel, um, in her testimony, which really, it's available on YouTube, it's, it's remarkable. Um, she was advised by a former Canadian Supreme Court justice in putting her testimony together. She read from text messages she received. She had email trail, all say, all documenting a widespread effort in the Canadian government to pressure her to make the decision. So it in wasn't this just the prime minister. Wasn't just the okay. prime minister. But what what would be I think interesting from the point of view, say, other countries' politics, it was still unusual for the prime minister to get directly involved. You would normally have lots of staff people who would say, you know, the prime minister really wants to see this resolved. Can't we come up with a compromise? But the prime minister would have kept hands off so as to avoid any political uh, scandal. And so that was mistake number one, that, that he himself got directly involved. And then I think the second mistake and the one that is hurting him the most was the demotion as a punishment for not going along with what he wanted to see happen. Because had he left Jody Wilson-Raybould in place and found some way to end run her, overrule her, all of which would have been possible, um, she would have been frustrated, but she wouldn't have been disrespected. And the prime minister styles himself as a, as a feminist, as concerned about Aboriginal First Nations Canadians trying to bring justice to this community, and and as someone who is unlike you know, conservatives of the past, unlike liberals of the past, not someone who's personally corrupt. So then he gets directly involved. One thing that may not be apparent to your listeners is that Jody Wilson-Raybould is a First Nations, uh, an Aboriginal person, a First Canadian, I guess you could say, and her father was a chief in a um, in a tribal grouping in British Columbia, and it had been involved at national politics representing First Nations in Canada before. So she comes at this with a sense of stature and great dignity. She has a recognized name. She's a known political She's a known quantity, quantity. And, okay. and also for who she represents. Not only was she 
the highest-ranking woman in the cabinet, apart from Christy Freeland, the foreign minister, but she was a First Nations representative and a pathbreaker in getting this job. So for the prime minister who said, these are the kind of injustices I want to correct, these are the people I want to respect in and doing business differently, to then go and demote her seemed to, to just run right counter to the image that he he and his very effective political machine had been putting out there for Canadians, that most Canadians liked. So that's where the damage is, is it translates from the law, and I don't think anybody's in danger of, you know, Trudeau's not going to jail. It goes to the political, because he had a carefully crafted image as something new and fresh. This suggests it, it's the same old male politician who plays by the old rules. Okay, that's so that's a very interesting wrinkle that I, I didn't pick up, um, and I don't know that many of our listeners would pick up unless they studied Canadian politics for a living like you do, Chris. <laughs> the fact that it's a demotion here and sort of the sign of disrespect uh, that has really got him in trouble. Um, like you said, if she had merely had her stay on, overruled her, said, Brody, that's the way we're doing it. This seems to be kind of a couple of rookie mistakes in a row here that, uh, you know, number one, getting involved personally, and then number two, not thinking through this, uh, what a demotion looked like rather than just simply overruling the attorney general, which I would think everyone would argue the prime minister has a right to do, right, at, at some level. Sure. No, absolutely. And so one of the things that uh, I found fascinating is that while Jody Wilson-Raybould was testifying in front of a parliamentary committee, that initially the prime minister ordered her not to speak about any of this in public. So she was under a gag order as well. And the media were quite concerned, like, what's going on? We see this as an emotion. Why is this happening? Is it related to the SNC-Lavalin crisis or issue? And he, the prime minister reluctantly said, well, you can speak publicly because he was under so much pressure. It looked like he was gagging her so that she couldn't say anything bad about him. Um, while she was giving her very effective, devastating testimony, we had the spectacle in the United States of Michael Cohen testifying about Donald Trump in front of the House of Representatives. Um, Did anybody do a split screen? Just well, they should have done because you would have, you would have seen this great contrast because Michael Cohen, arguably not very credible, a bit of a sleazeball, suggesting that Donald Trump is the same. But it didn't run counter to most people's images of Donald Trump. Now, he didn't allege anything that Trump could go to jail for. There wasn't enough there for impeachment. But it did make it look like no, Donald no Trump. No one was shocked by what he was alleging. No, yeah. no. It's a world of developers <laughs> in New York. Yeah. So you had these – it was more theatrical. It was more slimy. Mm -hmm. And it had all the partisan hallmarks of a, you know American ever since Watergate mm -hmm. kind of great hearing. Canada, you had this very respectable, dignified, principled woman who came in with facts, and she was going, her message was directly challenging Trudeau as he's portrayed himself to voters. So it was much more damaging because it was running against expectation and because she was so much more credible. Does this also get sort of the heart of Trudeau's other uh, vulnerability as a politician, this idea that he's a bit of a lightweight that, that he's a little bit of a dilettante. I mean, he had he, he grew up with a famous name, with famous parents. Um, and then, you know, you, you recall the trip, was it to India, where he, you know, put on the costume and did the dance? You know, yeah. I, I think most people thought that was fairly ridiculous, right? Um, how much of this, okay, so let's, let's go now to what is the political damage to Trudeau and to uh, the Liberal Party? Well, if you, I mean, we're talking about short term and long term, right? Short term, you said no one's going to jail over this. I imagine there might be a couple more resignations, some hearings. Mm -hmm. um, but is there any other short term danger? So there are 
couple of dangers. And if you'd asked me this on Monday, I would have had one answer. I have a slightly different answer today, and that's due to the resignation of um, the president of the Treasury Board, who's a funny Canadian sort of management board Mm -hmm. department within government, Jane Philpott. Jane Philpott is also among the most uh, respected uh, members of the cabinet. She's um, she's got a great amount of dignity. She resigned feeling that she no longer had confidence in the leadership of the prime minister, accelerating the issue because you had a British Columbia, now you have an Albertan taking this that, that next step. So I think that that has made it much more perilous for the prime minister. One of the funny things about a parliamentary system is that all of the members of the cabinet and the caucus were elected in their own right. So while they can be kicked out of cabinet, they can't be made to go away. Unlike an American cabinet uh, secretary, you just fire and they write a memoir or something. So they're still around. And what keeps Trudeau in power is his caucus. Um, The famous phrase you learn when you're a, a school kid in a parliamentary system is that the people elect a parliament, the parliament elects a government. And so the the battle here is for a handful of people within the Liberal Party who have seats in the in the parliament, the House of Commons, who if they think that Trudeau is either too damaged as a leader or was likely to take them down in the they next election, dump him. they could dump him. And we saw that as recently as Paul Martin, who was finance minister for Jean Chrétien in the 90s, who executed a, a kind of palace coup to push uh, Jean Chrétien, who'd won three elections with record majorities, uh, out of the party leadership and became prime minister in 2004. A campaign that left a lot of bad blood inside the Liberal Party, but it showed that it can be done. Jody Wilson-Raybould could easily be a challenger for the leadership of the party, um, as could Jane Hil- Phil- Philpott and others. And so, so that's problem number one. The second thing that I think people should focus on is the role of Quebec here. So the prime minister going into his re-election um, has to think about where he's going to get seats to reconstruct his majority. We've talked in earlier episodes about the problem of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which British Columbians re- reacted against because they now have a coalition NDP, sort of Social Democratic and Green government, that, do- that wants to revoke the provincial support for the pipeline, which is going to move Alberta oil and gas to the, to the coast. But Alberta, which very much wants the pipeline, has been fighting with British Columbia. Trudeau decided to buy the pipeline from its American owners and in the process reopened a um, uh, court review of the approvals process because now it looked like the federal government had approved a pipeline that they now owned as a bit too cozy, forcing a re-review of the pipeline. So the government spent about $5 billion dollars to buy this pipeline from the Americans, and neither British Columbia nor Alberta is happy about it, and taxpayers elsewhere aren't happy about it, and nothing is actually being built because it's all been held up in court. So the West is bad. Uh, they have one seat. The Liberals have one seat in Saskatchewan. Uh, a person probably get reelected, Ralph Goodale, who's in the cabinet. Uh, but uh, Manitoba doesn't look particularly good for the Liberals, so it'll be Ontario primarily and Quebec that decide it. Quebec... Quebec has been having a rough couple of years. They, they've been hit with steel and aluminum tariffs, and Quebec's a big producer of aluminum because of the um, hydro-Quebec hydroelectricity, and that is coming from the United States. And for all the talk about USMCA, that issue wasn't dealt with uh, inside the deal. We still are hitting them with tariffs. On top of that, um, although it was resolved, Boeing sued Bombardier, another Quebec national champion kind of firm, for dumping, which led to Airbus purchasing uh, 
portion of the C-Series jets from Bombardier and Boeing buying Embraer, which is Bombardier's big rival, and then bringing that into the North American market. Then there was dairy, which was the other big thing that Quebecers were worried about. It's, it, it's sort of an emotional issue. Everyone likes milk. Um, well, not everyone. The lactose intolerant are hard to deal with. But the, <laughs> but the dairy farmers are well organized as a lobby, and they're quite upset that the concession that was made as part of the USMCA deal gives more space for U.S. Imp- exports into can- the Canadian market. And with the CETA agreement, which is Canada's agreement with the European Union, another amount was carved open. And in the Comprehensive Tra- Trans-Pacific Partnership, Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, the the new TPP, which Canada signed, another percentage was good. Add all that up, about 10% of the dairy market is now available for imports from outside Canada. So they're under a tremendous amount of pressure, and they haven't been thrilled with the way that uh, the Trudeau government has managed things. I think Trudeau is going to struggle a bit in Ontario, but he, so he has to have Quebec. He has a he has under 40 seats in Quebec. Quebec has 75 altogether. He has room to grow, but he's going to have to get as many of those seats as possible to hope to get reelected. There is another possibility come October, and that is that he gets a minority government. So he has more seats than anybody else, but not an absolute majority. And then his room to maneuver is extremely circumscribed. And he has to be very careful. So Looking at all of that, knowing that a leadership campaign would be very tough if you wanted to have a new leader, you'd probably have an interim one, knowing that Trudeau himself wouldn't go away. Let's say you you had a palace coup. He's still a member of parliament. So unless he decides to quit, he can make his successor's life very difficult. So all of this happening within the family makes Canadian politics, and I, I realize for most of your listeners, this is a rare occasion, but it makes Canadian politics quite interesting for a change. So, so Chris, maybe this isn't a mistake. You know, so... Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm correcting myself as of 10 minutes ago. It sounds like, based on what you just described, did, did Justin Trudeau do a cost-benefit analysis? And, and for all the reasons you just listed, he, he thought to himself, if I am seen or my government is seen as striking yet another blow at another well-recognized, profitable, successful uh, Quebec company, there's hell to pay. I mean, it, so maybe he just took the least... Uh, worst po- way out of this, although he probably should just fired her, right, as opposed to demoting her. I think that that's probably where this will come out. And they, they always say after Watergate, you know, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. Then he, he can be accused of doing things that were improper, but as I say, nothing that's going to end him in jail, I think. And so it was more how he handled it that hurt him. Um, this is why, and, and some of your listeners will have seen my comment in the Washington Post, which is, I think, maybe he grovels his way out of this. He hasn't made a forthright apology. And there's another little wrinkle. Um, during the course of the last year, he was accused of sexual harassment uh, by a, um, a person that he worked with in, in British Columbia. And his response to that, being super feminist, was, well, she obviously just understood things differently. And then he said the same thing about Jody Wilson-Raybould when she disagreed with him. So, you know, this is the problem. He's starting to look slimy, and that's not good for him. I think the way out is a full, no-holds-barred apology, accepting that what he did was wrong and improper, but more in the reaction and probably offering Jody Wilson-Raybould a, a, a job, you know, maybe another cabinet position, something uh, something that would be seen as equivalent and, and in the Aboriginal community would be seen as, as properly um, respectful. And this is the other interesting thing. I, the Aboriginal community in Canada is about 300,000 people. It's not large. Canada's population is about 38 million. But their, their political impact is, is 
based on the very broad sympathy that, that Canadians who are not First Nations have for this community, which is poorer than other parts of uh, other parts of the Canadian population, and there's a sense that they were in some way displaced by Western uh, and and Eastern now large large number of Canadians coming from Asia um, migrants, and that they that there needs to be some restorative justice for them. So I think this is where this issue and and the symbolism of it could actually hurt. Uh, Trudeau very much in Ontario and Quebec, not because the Aboriginal vote is lost, but because others who think we should be doing right by these people will be upset. So if he can make amends in the proper way, uh, fire a few people just to spread the blame, then I think he can maybe turn it around. Chris, outside of the chattering classes and the political analysts, you know, what do ordinary Canadians think? Is there ever Has there been any polling in the last couple of weeks uh, since this broke showing you know, drops in support in any of their provinces? There's been a little bit. Um, I think that the problem is a bit like what you see in U.S. politics and that there's probably about a third of the electorate distributed unevenly across the country that would support the liberals and about a third that will support the conservatives and a third that's up for grabs. And we have something similar with the U.S., with Republicans, Democrats, and independents. Um, so it makes it hard to predict. Uh, they're much closer, if you look at the poll support for the liberals, they're much closer to their core, um, and the middle is, is, is kind of shaky. And what makes Canadian politics a little bit different is that because they have a third party, the NDP, the National New Democratic Party, they're a social democratic conscience party. They're a party you can vote for, not because you expect them to be in government, but because you want to feel good that you voted for something principled that is the right thing. Um, their presence gives people a way to vote against the liberals without feeling like you're going to elect somebody uh, that you don't like. For example, the conservatives. And then there are a lot of conservative Canadians who haven't liked Trudeau from the beginning, didn't like his father and are ready to pounce. That's a very tricky combination. It's going to be, that's why I think that there's a political peril here for him to sort of navigate his way through. So it sounds like the best possible thing that could happen Justin Trudeau right now would be to Donald, for Donald Trump to insult him in some way, right? I mean, do, are they trying to arrange a White House visit and then have uh, Trump Dump on Trudeau because that would get him out of this. Yeah, right? they they might not go that far, but I, but but you're onto something, and I I think it's always a danger to underestimate your ability to read Canadian politics. You 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 hit on the nail very well. I think in this case, the U.S. is the elephant in the room. Uh, one of the things that Trudeau prided himself on from the beginning with Donald Trump was the his ability to manage that relationship. Now he doesn't want to look like a poodle to Trump, but he wants so he wants to stand up for Canadians, but he has to walk that fine line because Canadians want somebody who can help manage their market access, their biggest market globally. Um, Canadians may not like Donald Trump, but um, they like Americans and they like the United States. And so they want the relationship managed and they expect that Trudeau will do it. If Trudeau looks like he is unable to or that, that, that he's not going to do a good job, then that's when Canadians will start thinking about how to change things. Conversely, if Trudeau is able to um, elevate the Canada-U.S. file and show perhaps an ability, a deafness, uh, whether Trump insults him or not, uh, that all will change the subject significantly and allow him perhaps to move on beyond the short-term scandal. Chris, thanks very much for coming back on the show. You have managed to make Canadian politics sound both exciting and dramatic. We're all going to find at the end of the day that these were this is fake news. You planted it, Chris, <laughs> right? Just so you could keep coming on shows and talk about it, right? Please don't tell me that's true. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, but I will say that when, when Canadian politics are interesting, I, I do my best to make adva take advantage of the moment. It doesn't happen often. Thanks very much, Chris, for coming back and talking to us. And thanks for having me, Richard. Thank you very much. 
Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the America's Program page at CSIS.org.